Hello and welcome to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan Rayburn and this is part 8 in our series on the book of Exodus. So far, an awful lot has happened. In the last episode, we looked briefly at the plagues and a few ideas around what they might symbolize, but I didn't cover the last plague that happens. Part of the reason for this was that I knew that it's a tough thing to think about the, the subject matter of the last plague, and I have a horrible feeling that this episode deals with that last plague entirely inadequately. So I'm afraid you're going to have to forgive me for not solving some of the problems raised in the next part of the Exodus story. In any case, I don't think stories like the Exodus story need to be solved, but it is helpful to have at least some kind of indication of how to interpret things. I guess we're going to just have to see how we go. Um, if this is imperfect, I hope it will at least offer some decent food for thought. As far as we've covered so far, what happens more or less is this. Moses and Aaron, on behalf of God, give Pharaoh a chance to cooperate. Pharaoh says no, which is not a good idea because failing to cooperate with reality doesn't stop reality from being what it is. You can, for instance, believe that if you were ever to be hit by a car, that you would be totally fine, unharmed in a way. Well, if said car were to come along and actually hit you at a hundred miles an hour, your beliefs would mean nothing, obviously. They would not stop the inevitable from being the inevitable. Pharaoh's denial of the request is not the denial of some ideology or some perspective or an opinion, but is, at least it re represents, a denial of what is ultimately true. And this is not going to be a good thing for him. It's going to haunt him in a way that is going to prove alarming. In Deuteronomy 11, we find the famous idea of the two ways that God puts before his people. And of course, this is in sort of reflection on, on their history and especially on what happens in the Exodus story. The one way is the way of blessing and the other one is the way of the curse. This is poetic language and it more or less implies the idea of siding with the real or siding against it. It's not a promise that terrible things won't happen to you if you walk in the way of blessing. And it's also not a promise that good things won't happen to you if you walk in the way of the curse. Life is far more complicated than simply, you know, you do good things and then good things will happen. Um, or if you do bad things, then your life will always go terribly wrong. Sometimes the the nature of causality and things that happen to us is, is just a, it's an intricate web of very complex possibilities. I think this choice between uh, the way of blessing and the way of curse is an indication of the choice that we have to side with what is true and real or to side with what isn't. In the Exodus story, the way of blessing leads to the promised land and the way of the curse leads away from it, or at least not anywhere. Uh, taken mythologically, the promised land is the point at which perception and reality are married and are fully cooperating. It's the place of unity with the source of reality. To fail to reach the promised land, mythologically speaking again, is to be in a perpetual argument with reality and or the source of reality. And if you were wondering, in that argument, the loser will not be reality. In the Didache, which is this fantastic ancient catechism which belonged to and originated with the first century Christians, the idea of the, the two ways is put like this. There is the way of life 
and then there is the way of death. The way of life leads to the fullness of being, to flourishing, to wholeness and well-being, even when life throws terrible things at us. The way of death leads to disintegration and self-destruction, even if life happens to throw good things at us from time to time. The way of death is the antithesis of the wholeness of being. Often the two ways are easily recognizable, but in the world today the difference between the two is almost certainly the furthest thing from obvious. Moral norms are hardly ever norms anymore, mostly because, well, as far as I can tell, so many people believe that morality is an issue merely of preference. It's what you happen to like, <laughs> which is you know, a terribly uh, subjective view of, of how to measure what is good. Also, relationships have changed thanks to various cultural and technological dimensions, which means that the precise outcome of our actions isn't always that immediately obvious. From the Pharaoh's perspective, he doesn't really see a link between his stubbornness or his decision-making and the plagues. From his point of view, the plagues are more about the fact that the God of Moses has issues than about the fact that he is wrong. But Moses and Aaron tried to get it through his thick skull that the point really is that he is wrong. God will stop the plagues instantly if he, that is Pharaoh, were to stop taking the path of death. It will, in fact, go well with him if he stops trying to fight reality. Pharaoh's choices affect more people than our choices normally do, given that most of us aren't that powerful or influential. What we do badly is, is not necessarily going to affect many people negatively. But I think Pharaoh in this story is a massive lesson for us. Remember that he is, in a sense, us. All of us are wedded, to an extent, to things that do not contribute either to our wholeness or to the wholeness of others. And we would do well, I think, to, to try to discern what these things might be, and then to try and change them. Ridding ourselves of certain ways of being may be painful in the short term. For instance, quitting smoking or an abusive relationship or a job that's making you and your family, by extension, miserable can be torturous and in some ways very hard in the short term. It's because, you know, we get used to certain things and changing them is always difficult. This is part of what it means to be human, is to struggle to change. But in the long term, sticking with those things is going to be even worse than the immediate pain of, of trying to uh, you know, quit, quit our various Egypts. Pharaoh doesn't want to quit his part in the slave trade. Pharaoh is stuck in Egypt, just as we all are in different ways. In his view, slaves are quite useful. Long term, though, you become, as Pharaoh is, a slave of a different kind. Ultimately, in the way of death, no one is free, not even the one who is apparently making all the decisions. Because Pharaoh consistently and rather stupidly chooses to stick with his death-dealing, the ultimate result will be death, very unsurprisingly. God declares the following in words that every time I read them, they make me shudder. About midnight, I will go into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, 
nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. It's easy to read words like these with a kind of sense of righteous indignation against the sort of God who would declare such a thing. But in doing so, I think we would miss the meaning or the meanings of the story, various other interpretive possibilities. Various apologists have um, come along and, and provided various answers to this particular event. And some of those answers are helpful and some of them are not. But my aim here is not to present an apologetic. I'm not trying to explain what God did or did not do, since that's not how I'm reading the Exodus story. And so in a way, I'm, I'm going to be rather uncomfortably silent on some of the more sort of complex, say, moral issues. Although hopefully what I do say here is in some way helpful to you. What I am trying to figure out here is something more along the lines of the significance of the way of perceiving that is presented in the story. So notice first the idea of the firstborn. In ancient cultures, this was commonly the semiotic equivalent of the best. I know this is a simplification, but I think it's, an, it's a, a fair one. If you lived in an ancient culture that had the habit of sacrificing its children or its animals to the gods, the general idea would have been that the gods should get the firstborn, i.e. the best. But before we jump to conclusions, this does not mean that God demanded a sacrifice of the firstborn. That would be the wrong way to read the story. In fact, Exodus is very clear that God treats the death of the firstborn as a judgment, not a sacrifice. Um, but this may not have been how the Egyptians would have seen it. So I'm looking, trying to figure out what they would have perceived in this sort of scenario. In fact, if we hold the text a little bit looser, which is precisely what I'm trying to do, it's possible that the death of the firstborn might have been at the hand of the Egyptians themselves. They could have been sacrificing their best to their gods in the hope that their gods would restore peace, given the fact that nature and culture were in such a terrible state of distress. When you examine historical anthropology, you'll find that sacrificial rituals were at the center of human cultures. Sacrifice was the plug pulled on mimetic violence, and it's therefore very likely that the death of the firstborn across Egypt is a sign of this, an indication that they underwent some sort of uh, sacrificial process to try and appease the gods, given the nature of the crisis that they were in. But I say all of this knowing very well that this is, this is speculation. And I'm going to take it um, very lightly for this reason. It's possible, though, because I think it does fit with various anthropological patterns. And um, I think we would do well to pay attention to the lessons of, of what scholars have kind of discovered through studying anthropology. <laughs> Again, it's not something we can assert with any kind of certainty. Uh, it's just one possible way of reading the story. In any case, of course, the text says that this was God's doing, not at the hands of the Egyptians. It was his judgment, and that's a fair thing to bring to mind. But also keep in mind that in the ancient mindset, everything that happens in the human picture takes place within the frame of God's providence. That's how the ancients would have read these stories, and it's very important to see that happening. God has a kind of providential agency, even 
in things that are not necessarily his will. That's a complex issue of its own. It doesn't mean that God is actively doing nasty things to upset our modern ethical sensibilities, but rather, as Robert Capon would say, that God rides the bicycle of history with no hands. Uh, or to use another image, God, who is not controlling in his love, he cannot be controlling in his love, always woos creation towards himself and towards its own true self. And what this means is that even when terrible things happen, things that are not part of God's active will, everything still kind of miraculously finds its end and its redemption in his goodness. So there's a paradox here that we can either, I guess, accept or not, which is that even if everything in the story is not authored by God, the story is ultimately still God's story. I guess you could find a kind of analogy in the way that we attribute um, authorship to a film director, even though he is not controlling every active element in the in the filmmaking process. It's an analogy, not a perfect one, but it it might help to illuminate some uh, of the complexity of this this um, story. What the passage about the death of the firstborn also suggests is the consequence of Pharaoh's original decision to kill all the firstborn boys of Israel. And this was obviously back when Moses was a little tyke. At the level of ethics, this means something along the lines of doing harm to others is doing harm to yourself. This is the principle of negative reciprocity. The evil you inflict on the world is evil that you're inflicting upon yourself, since you are only ever a self through the lives and desires of others. The pain and suffering you inflict on others, whether you feel it immediately or not, is bound to catch up with you, whether you like it or not. Then, consider another way of reading the death of the firstborn in the light of the idea that the firstborn equals the best. This kind of reading deals with the idea in a more abstract manner. In a corrupted state, the best you can offer is going to be a kind of non-thing, something that cannot even be sacrificed to your gods. In a sense, then, if it is God who takes the firstborn, he is in effect taking what is already his. His action, then, is a kind of mercy, not murder. He takes what would otherwise have been offered up and lived out for the gods of Egypt. Death, we should remember, is the wages of sin. This is a phrase from Paul. In fact, in some early Jewish thinking, the, the wages of sin are paid by death. And when this happens, the debt is settled. It's done. It doesn't need to be paid again by some sort of additional sacrifice. In a more poetic interpretation, Isidore of Seville reads the death of the firstborn as the destruction of the principalities and powers of Egypt. I really like this reading, obviously, because it, it deals away with some of the complexities of or the ethical complexities of reading the story more literally. Um, the principle here is that if you want genuine freedom, you're going to need, in a sense, to put to death whatever it is in your life that is holding you within that state of slavery. For an alcoholic, for example, the firstborn is that damned bottle of wine or whiskey or, or whatever. It needs to be judged. A decision needs to be taken. Remember that it is the death of the firstborn that ultimately leads to Israel's freedom. The last idea I'll mention on this issue is the idea that death is dished out equally. 
the king's firstborn dies, as does the Egyptian beggar's firstborn. So, in a way, we see here that death is the great leveler. Death is, in a way, highly democratic. We cast our votes, as it were, by the crosses on our graves. In preparation for the night during which God would pass over Egypt and during which all the firstborn would die, the Israelites are instructed to mark the doorposts of their homes with the blood of a slaughtered lamb. Which is a terribly weird thing to do, if you think about it, but it is what was commanded. The Spirit of God would then exclude these homes from his judgment. When Israel eventually leaves Egypt, they leave in such a hurry that they can't actually even wait for their bread to rise. In other words, they, they can't wait for the leaven or the yeast to do its work. All of this, including the, the uh, letting of the people of Israel go, is commemorated in a meal, which suggests, this is actually a really profound thing, it suggests a major shift in human consciousness away from sacrificial ritual towards a meal, which in Christianity becomes the Eucharist or the communion meal. In ancient cultures, sacrificial ritual was what united people. It, what, it was at the root of all culture. It was the kind of glue that held culture together. But in Judaism and later in Christianity, the thing that held culture together was a common meal or a series of common meals. It was festivity, um, getting together to share in something in, in a larger purpose. During the first Eucharist, Jesus commands his disciples to do this in remembrance of me. In other words, do this, and not that other sacrificial thing you tend to do. Do this, have this meal, hold a meal together, rather than sort of gathering around to, to uh, hold an animal under a knife, for instance. The Bible, as mimetic theorists have noted, records humanity's movement away from ritual sacrifice towards a communion of mind and being in self-sacrificial gestures. And, and in fact, this is pretty amazing, even the word sacrifice comes to have a different meaning over time. Now we talk about the sacrifice of parents for their children of, or of soldiers for their country, for example, not because a bunch of animals died under the blade of a shaman, but because people have elected to give of themselves for the sake of another. Everything happens just as God predicts. The Hebrew people are left alone. And the Egyptians experience a trauma that is barely imaginable. So Pharaoh, at last, calls for Moses and Aaron and tells them that they and their people are free to go. So Pharaoh has lost his son, so he's in a state of enormous devastation. And instead of calling for immediate vengeance, that's going to come later, he in fact gives up. He stops fighting, uh, which in itself is uh, you know, just a, a kind of resignation to the real, the thing that he's just experienced. Finally, Moses' people do make their way towards freedom, and they get to take what they can including wealth bestowed upon them by the Egyptians, and they get to leave. This is pretty uh, amazing at the level of symbolism, because they, they do not leave empty-handed. As the church fathers read it, the symbol here is that while being in slavery is terrible, and it should never happen, that which is attributed to the enemy, i.e. the wealth here, which is a symbol of cultural knowledge and wisdom, the wealth there is not bad. 
You can even learn from your enemy and gain something from noticing what is good in what they possess. This is not about their possessions per se, but rather, obviously, as I've suggested, about what they, um, about sort of more hidden gifts, knowledge, insight, wisdom. You can leave the, the sort of grasp of your enemy without being spiteful or resentful. I think this raises a pretty potent idea that we would do well to pay attention to in, in whatever political engagements we, we are undertaking. When you study various revolutionary movements, you start to pick up a pattern. When people finally overthrow those who had oppressed them, it's quite natural for those people to, as it were, throw the good out with the bad, or the baby out with the bathwater, to use the idiom. Almost without fail, revolutions against tyranny have set up new forms of tyranny. And even before the revolution has succeeded, tyrants are viewed as so evil that they are beyond redemption. This is fairly normal, fairly common, but it is definitely not in keeping with the Judeo-Christian stream of ethical and political thinking. I think the persistence of Moses and Aaron is a, an indication that they want Pharaoh to see the good in them and in the Hebrew slaves, and to know the God who wants to redeem not just Israel, but everyone, even in the midst of death, is always the promise of resurrection. Unfortunately, though, the desire for vengeance is difficult to overcome in people. I think humanity will have grown up when it is able to genuinely notice the good in the enemy and not just the bad when it is able to realize that the enemy, whoever that is, is just as complex and three-dimensional as the friend. We live in a world that loves its echo chambers. Familiar thoughts, of course, psychologically speaking, are really comforting to most of us. But what happens if the familiar thoughts that we have are not enough? What if the unfamiliar thoughts are right? Maybe they will help us to, to find the way of life or the way of blessing. This may seem very abstract to you, and maybe I'm putting it in overly abstract terms, but I think the question we all need to ask ourselves in our various stations and circumstances is this. What is the wealth of Egypt that we get to take along with us when we find our way to freedom? So that is it from me for this episode. Until next time, take care everyone. Cheers.